Welcome to the Paddle Sports Lifestyle, where we invite you to dare to dream and embrace adventure. I'm your host, Kim Peek, and together with my friends, we'll help you discover new horizons and push the limits of what's possible. In season one, I'm gearing up for my biggest challenge yet, the MR340, a grueling 340-mile paddle race along the Missouri River. But before I embark on this epic journey, I'm going to need to learn everything about the world of paddling. Learn along with me so you can find your own epic adventure on the water. Welcome back to the Paddle Sports Lifestyle. I promised you an episode on my moonlight paddle, but the weather has not been our friend lately. Due to a weather forecast that included lightning, we had to cancel that paddle plus a couple of backup dates. However, I am back for my longest paddle yet, and this episode includes a very lively story about the moonlight paddle that was part of the 124 miles that our group did over two days on the Missouri River. And I have to tell you, as a result of that trip, I am feeling very prepared for the MR340. This trip threw every sort of weather and obstacle at us, and we survived. We did more than survive. We crushed it. And I am just so darn proud of every one of the people who made this trip. We have come such a long way in three short months. We covered one of the sections of river that's near the middle of the race. We started in Waverly on Wednesday morning, stayed in Glasgow for the night, and then paddled on to Cooper's Landing as our ending point on Thursday. I left my house at 4.45 a.m. to drive to Anne's house, and we rode together with her husband, Jamie, to meet everyone else in Waverly for an 8 a.m. start. By the time everybody got their boats loaded, it was closer to 8.45, which seems to be typical with this group. We plan a start time and then still somehow drag it out a little bit beyond that. But anyway, it was all good. And that is actually part of the fun of paddling with this group of people is that everybody is so easygoing, so laid back and so flexible. And so when little things go wrong, and we had a lot of little things go wrong on this trip. When little things go wrong, nobody's freaking out. It doesn't contribute negative energy. And everybody just remains calm and we still have fun. We just kind of go with it. So we started it around 8.45. Energy was high and we were excited for our adventure ahead. But we had to pull off the water almost as soon as we started. We could still see the ramp where we put in when we saw lightning in the area. So we found a nice sandbar to wait on, and while we waited, we had this conversation about possibly doing Ragbri next year, which was funny because when we drove to Waverly that morning, I started talking to Anne about someone asking in the Ragbri forums if the corn is really knee-high by the 4th of July. And I don't know if that's like a everywhere saying, but it's definitely a Midwestern saying in the states where we grow corn. And so then that got me talking about how I've always wanted to do Ragbri. Now, Ragbri, if you have never heard of it, is a bike ride across Iowa. The letters stand for Register's Annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa, which was started in 1973 by the Des Moines Register. It is the oldest and largest and longest recreational bicycle touring event in the world. So it's kind of the MR340 of bike riding. It is always held the last full week in July and the route averages 468 miles. As we waited out the rain, we learned that our entire group 
has talked about doing ragbri at one point or another. And the talk quickly turned to, well, what if we did a double challenge next year? Is it even possible? When are the events regularly scheduled? Will they overlap? Would we have enough time to rest between the two events if we wanted to do a double? But we will need to wait to find out when the 340 is next year, since both events require time off from work and recovery time. And the 340 is usually dictated by when the full moon is. And there's some other factors I don't remember. But anyway, because I think all of us plan to do the 340 again next year. We've already talked a lot about ways we would change our training for next year and what we would do differently. So for me, at least, the goal is to simply finish this year and then next year go into it a little bit more competitively and try to improve my time. And by competitive, I mean competing with myself, improving my time, being more confident from the start. I'm not talking about winning the race or being anywhere near the front. I'm just talking about doing it better than I'm going to do it this year. Because I know with everything I've learned this year, I can definitely improve my training and my effort and my ability over a year's time. So the storm is over and we get back in our boats, starting our collection of the thick Missouri mud in our cockpits for the day. When I got home from this trip, the inside of my boat was covered in mud and everything that was inside my cockpit had that sandy, mucky, gross mud. It was just all covered in river grime. Nothing too eventful happened in the next stretch of our paddle. We had five paddlers, and we were supported by Jamie, who is Anne's amazing husband. And in this next stretch, my biggest struggle was that I couldn't pee in the boat. Men generally pee in a Gatorade bottle. For women, it's a bit more tricky. If you notice a lot of women wear skirts, it's because a skirt makes it easier to get inside your pants or to reach underneath to use one of the many options that they have available for women to urinate. I tried this bag thing with gel in the bottom on our first river paddle and wound up paddling in a pile of my own pee. I know, super, super gross. So I bought these pads that have an absorbent gel. They're just kind of like a pad that maybe you would use for somebody that is bedridden. And they have an, an absorbent gel to suck the moisture out. And so my idea was that when it was time to go to the bathroom, I would just stick it inside my pants like you would with a pad, go to the bathroom, and then place it in a baggie in the bottom of my boat. I can't even tell you if it worked because although I could tell my bladder was full and I needed to relieve myself, I couldn't make myself go. It like wouldn't come out. Fortunately, we were getting close to Miami, which was where we planned to stop for our first little break to regroup. For the most part, we stayed in groups of two to three and then regrouped at the next ramp where we planned to meet our crew, which was Jamie. We did stop at certain ramps because we wanted to roughly simulate how we'd meet up with our crew during the race. We stopped at the ramp in Miami, which is 32 river miles from Waverly, and everyone got out of the boats to stretch their legs, get more water, mix new hydration drinks, and I stood in the river and peed and peed and peed. Never in a million years would I have thought that I would be talking about peeing in boats, peeing in the river, admitting to either, or talking about it on a podcast. But here we are. Needless to say, I didn't even try to pee on the boat again on this trip. I still need a race week solution, but 
We had such a variety of things happen to us on this trip that I had plenty of opportunities to get out of the boat and relieve myself. Oh boy. So we left Miami and we planned to meet up again in Dalton Bottoms before heading on to Glasgow for the night. But by this point, it was getting hot and the high was around 100 degrees both days. So hydration was important. And I didn't feel like we ever got overly hot, but you on the river, because we are all wearing wicking shirts, um, paddling shirts, we weren't really feeling the heat. Our clothes weren't staying super wet. It was drying fast. And so with the wind and the water, we weren't as aware of the heat, but you know that you're still sweating. So hydration is important. Most of us carried two hydration bladders, either on our boats or behind our seats, I carried Tailwind and Hammer's Perpetuum. I didn't like the Perpetuum in a bladder, so next time I will carry Tailwind and water in my bladders, and I'll make a small batch of Perpetuum in a water bottle. That stuff is not so great as it starts to get warm, and for me to drink it, I'm going to need a lot more flavor. I thought it was just pretty watered down. It tastes like a watered-down milkshake coming out of a hose. was just not great. The flavor was okay. It was just really weak. So I think I will just make it stronger next time so that I can tolerate the taste. When we got to Dalton Bottoms, one person in our group decided to call it quits for the day. So Jamie got her boat loaded on the Jeep and took her to Glasgow to begin setting up camp. We took a longer break than needed at this ramp. There was a guy trying to load a boat, so we pulled all of our kayaks off the ramp so that he could back down the ramp. And then we also had the one boat to load onto the Jeep. And combined with the time we lost due to lightning, we would not have beaten the Reaper on our first day out here, which was a little disappointing, but we also had some major learning opportunities, and we really did deal with pretty much anything this race could throw at us. We reapplied our sunscreen, checked our drinks, and prepared for the final leg of our day one paddle. Before we got back in the boats, we also added our red and green safety lights to the front of the boats and the white lights on the back. I was using the Race Owl Racer app, which was designed by John Marble. He is an MR340 participant and made this awesome app. Everything is free, except for if you want to see your boat between the lines, which I'll explain in a second, you pay like a small annual fee to have access to his app. Totally worth it. So I was using my phone with the screen on to track the channel, he gives you a little um, map of the river with two green lines that mark the outside edge of the channel and then a red line that if you stay on that red line, in theory, you're exactly in the center of the channel, which staying in the channel is a smart idea. It gives you free speed, so it's worth the effort to stay in the channel. Plus, if you know where the channel is and you're on the correct side of the river, then you know where the barges are going to be. Barges have to be in the channel, so you know to look out for barges. And then you know which side to exit on if you see a barge so that you are well out of their way. I am also using my Bluetooth to connect my phone to my Garmin watch and then using Raysol with the screen on. And my phone, when I have all that going on, seems to only have a six to eight hour battery life. And my phone had gotten wet earlier in the day. The phone case I keep around my neck didn't stay watertight. And when I went to put my phone on the charger, I got a warning that I could damage my phone. And so I couldn't charge my phone when I was ready to at this rest break. 
So I put my phone in a different dry bag and did not use it from Miami to Dalton Bottoms. By the time we got to Dalton Bottoms, my phone was dry again and I was able to charge it. So I put the phone on my charger in my dry bag and again, didn't use the phone to track the channel, but I had it secured in my boat, which is just all me practicing for how I'm going to solve these problems on race day, figuring out what I need to do to have a working phone so that if I am not traveling with a group of my friends, I know where the channel is. Because you can't assume that everybody ahead of you knows what they're doing or that they care to stay in the channel. And so you can't just randomly trust and follow the person in front of you unless you've trained together and you know what their plan is. As it got dark, we stayed closer together And so we distracted ourselves by having conversations and watching the sunset. And as I've said before, I love a good sunset. We watched the sun as it got lower and lower in the sky and then watched as its glow dimmed on the horizon. I was curious because we were within days of a full moon and I wanted to know how much the moonlight would help light our path. I was also surprised to see that the navigation lights that we added to our boats did not provide a lot of visibility, which was a good reminder that it's important to cut back on the talking and music at night and focus on the sounds of the water. Obstacles like wing dikes and buoys are hard to see at night, but if you're using your channel tracker and listening for water rushing around the obstacles, you should be good. Or so we thought. Shortly after the sun was fully down, I heard a splash and a string of swear words. We had a man in the water and hollered to make sure that those coming up behind Paul knew that he had hit a buoy. He would later tell us that he didn't see or hear it. And we were in the channel. As the rest of us navigated to the far edge of the channel to make sure we missed the buoy, Anne grabbed Paul's paddle, which was floating near his boat. I came up alongside the front of the boat, which Paul was holding on to. He used my boat to stabilize himself to flip the boat upright. It was filled with water, and in the dark, it was impossible to use the bilge pumps to empty it. It was just full of that brown, disgusting Missouri River water. We attached my tow rope to Paul's boat, and David had Paul hold on to the bottom of David's boat, Kind of like a koala bear would hold on to the bottom of it, you know, wrapping your legs and your arms around the bottom. We paddled toward the shoreline, but it was dark and it's really hard to see. It's not like they have street lights out there or like it's a lake where with houses on it. It's pitch black. On the channel side of the river, the bank is always filled with rocks. And you just, it's hard to find like a little sandy area or any kind of an area to slide into where your boats aren't going to keep getting pushed downstream. As we floated downstream and toward the bank, I turned on my headlamp and tried to use it to get a better feel for what was ahead. As we floated downstream and toward the bank, I saw a wing dike and paddled behind it. There I wedged my boat between two rocks and pulled Paul's boat closer to mine. David delivered Paul to his boat and he emptied the water and he climbed back in. So that part was super uneventful. It was just that initial thing where we're like, oh man, it's dark. There's somebody in the water. Now, how do we get them out of here safely? All of this happened less than a mile from our campsite. Ann and I had our spot trackers on, so Jamie could see that we slowed down, but no one knew what happened. 
Also, we had been without cell service most of the day. The entire time, though, our group was calm. There was not a moment of panic, which helped us to work together to get Paul back in the boat. I learned a lot from this experience, especially the importance of being prepared, knowing basic rescue techniques, having your tow rope on your boat already so that all you're having to do is clip the other end to the person you're towing or the boat you're towing, and then having a way to track you, for someone to track you, using teamwork and staying calm so that everyone can think. We did a lot of things right. With the spot, if we felt like we had a situation we could not handle or if things had gone bad, we could have pressed an SOS button to alert Jamie. There's also another option on there to press an official SOS button that notifies authorities to come look for you. I love having this peace of mind with multiple options to communicate with our crew and with loved ones who might not be with us on the river. There's a little check button where you can press the check button and it sends a pre-designed message where you can say, just checking in, everything is good. You can create one custom message and then you have those two SOS options. So, and we also have a link that you can send to anybody who wants to track you. So anybody who cares about where you are or wants to know where you are can just click on that link at any time and see where your boat is at. So this all happened, again, really close to camp. We paddled into Glasgow and set up camp. Since we planned a kayak camp originally, we each had brought dehydrated meals because we were originally just going to carry all of our food and everything. So all we were going to take for a stove was the little pocket rocket kind of stove so that we could boil water. So Jamie boiled water while the rest of us set up tents. And then we poured water into our dehydrated meals which were surprisingly edible. I was really, really shocked. I didn't even know these things existed until about five months ago. And so I was really curious how they were going to taste. I had a chicken and fried rice option. And I think Jamie and Anne had something like biscuits and gravy in the morning, and they were all dehydrated foods. Anyway, again, Something that's exciting to new to all of this, me, but you might be aware of all of these things, but I kind of thought it was fun. And they really were surprisingly edible. I wouldn't say they were great, but they did taste really good after a long day on the water. We did our best to wash up, and then we climbed into our tents for the night. And I'm going to save the rest of the adventure for the next episode, because the next morning we faced two of my worst fears early in the day. This trip really did throw everything at us, and we are glad because we feel like we have a better understanding of what to expect on race week. So on that note, I will leave you for today. Wherever life takes you this season, make it an epic adventure. Mm -hmm.